There we go. It stopped spinning. That may think that means we're live, which means it's episode 54 of the Home Lab Show. Me and Jay are doing a QA. Mm -hmm. Welcome. And uh, how are you doing, Jay? I think that means we're live. And I have to mute my laptop, apparently. Oh. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I not a echo in the room. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was really odd. Okay, anyway. Anyways, welcome. Uh, so me and Jay went through, and you have a lot of questions, all of you listening. That was uh, those of you that went to the homelab.show, filled out the Q&A questions. Uh, we're going to start running through them, get those questions answered. If you want a question answered, the best way to do it is go over to the homelab.show and fill out our forum where we collect all the questions, read through them. Even if you just want to stop by and say hi because you don't have any questions, we like seeing some feedback in the feedback form. You can also tweet at us and tweet. Twitter and things like that too. We try to compile those in there, but the goal is to, you know, always keep everybody informed and uh, you do help steer us into some of different ideas and even suggest new technologies we'll be looking at. Before we dive into this Q&A episode though, let's thank a sponsor of the show and that is Linode. And Linode's been a sponsor of the show since pretty much the beginning and uh, they've continued to support us. We think it's a great place to host the podcast, which is why we do it. So we, that's why we're, uh, when we make the comment that, hey, this show is literally brought to you if you downloaded it. It was brought to you from a Linode server. So they uh, was where we host all the infrastructure for the Home Lab show. And it's also a great place to host all of the different projects that we talk about on this show. So we'd like to thank Linode for being a sponsor. If you want to get started with Linode, we have offer code, a Home Lab show uh, to get you started with that. I actually think it's the Home Lab show. I got to get that right. Make sure people do it. Either way, it's in the link down below. Both, both yep. Podcasts on the website and in the YouTube description. Keith Tom says it wrong. <laughs> so yep. thanks a little for sponsoring and let's get started. <laughs> let's get to it. So first question we have on here, Jay. The first question is how old is too old? And that was sent in by RP. And basically the consensus here is that we're always, or not always, but we often recommend older equipment because it's cheaper. Because if you think about it, you know, it could have this crazy awesome server that might have cost, you know, several thousands of dollars for a company. But then, you know, after some time goes by, it's, you know, outdated to that company. It doesn't keep up with their demands. And then next thing you know, it's for sale on eBay for $150, which is basically next to nothing compared to what it was uh, sold originally for. And at what point does that become too old for, you know, too slow for the home lab user? And the thing is, when you think about servers, they are very often, um, you know, very powerful machines because they keep up with a lot of users. But in the home lab, you're not going to have nearly as many users. Even a small company will have more users than you. So it really takes a lot, in my opinion, for these things to slow down. I think that power usage is a bigger concern because the yes. older ones are super, you know, expensive in power. They're just not very efficient. That's a bigger problem. But as long as it has, you know, the specs you're looking for, like the amount of RAM, it, it supports 64-bit operating systems, which I'm not aware of anyone, any of them that we talked about that isn't, you know, able to support that. So I think it's more of a question of the power usage because that's where it's going to cost you a lot of money over time, especially if you live in an area where power is expensive. That's definitely a bigger concern. But I would say the in my opinion, the R610, R710, you know, 720, um, and they're so still on. I would say they're still relevant. Um, the mm -hmm. other thing that's pushing a lot of people to their servers is availability of them uh, because some of the new newer equipment is a little harder to come by um, with some of the supply chain issues. So it's occasionally can be tricky to find. And some of your other commonly suggested low power devices, such as Raspberry Pis, are less accessible right now as well. Right. And there's two folds to think about is one, the electricity cost. Two, the heating or cooling costs heating really it's heating up your area maybe you live in a cold climate and that's fine maybe you don't and it's very much not fine so there's something else you have to consider is that higher wattage is dissipated as heat and then depending on where you live uh, you may have to reduce the temperature and uh, that's a different problem <laughs> so something else to think about it's another cost it's just the cost of the wattage it uses and then the btus uh, it creates then they need to pump that heat out of your uh, living space unless you want it that much warmer so those are all the considerations when you're looking at some of the older equipment it may work perfectly fine um but that may be the bigger concern for you mm -hmm. so yep. how old is too old is that balance hopefully 
<laughs> yeah, and you know, we don't really know what you're running. I mean, you could be someone that's running OpenStack and you have, you know, or at least that's what you want to do, which could really, you know, bring some hardware to its knees because sometimes that could be a very, you know, high um, usage platform. I mean, it's just going to use CPU and RAM like crazy. Not something I technically recommend, but if, if you're going to be certifying in OpenStack, you need something to play with there. You know, you know, maybe then you could make a case for something that's more powerful. But for most of the things that we're doing in the home lab, I just don't really feel like we need a crazy expensive new server. We're pretty good with what we could find. Yeah. Um, the next question about RJ45 ends. So this is a tricky one because there's a little bit of confusion. You'll see RJ45 ends labeled, whether they're Cat 5E, Cat 6, Cat 7, the bigger difference in them, electrically, they're not going to be substantially different at all. What they are going to have a big difference in, though, when you talk about the crimp end itself, is the fact that the cable diameters vary by spec. So the CAT6 cable uh, or CAT7 cable is going to be thicker. So you have to match them on that. But in terms of will they work? Yeah, you can sometimes stuff a uh, CAT6 into a CAT5E cable. It's not ideal, but if it's what you have, it shouldn't make really any speed difference because you're not dealing with much in the way of transmission data. Uh, you, when you think about it, they're just tiny little pins connecting a cable. As long as they have a good connection to that cable, you're fine. That's not where there's a major because functionally they're the same design wise. They have to snap into the same part, whether the cable coming to that point um, is a different type. Doesn't really matter much because they still conform in the plug part. So as long as each little of the pins touch the wire, that's not where you get a speed difference on there. Also, the person had mentioned they're running about 80 meters. Want to know if they should go with something more than cat six. And I don't see any reason to do that. Not with an 80 meter run. Uh, Cat 6 will do, if you go with Cat 6A specifically, you can do 10 gigs at 80 meters with Cat 6A. So there's not really any need to go for the heavier, harder to work with, more expensive cables. Uh, there's not really much of a benefit uh, for any of that, for those of you running it. And for uh, those of you that are willing to uh, gamble a little bit, um, not that I'm recommending this, but for those of you wondering if you have to replace the wire to get faster speeds, one of the things I've done, if you look at my channel, I've got some out-of-spec cabling videos where I talk about the fact that cable usually works a little better than it's rated. So it will not certify, it will not pass, but you can get away with it. And for a home lab, that may be perfectly fine. Uh, it's not a production environment. So if you go, can this Cat5 cable in my house uh, over a short distance transmit more than one gig? Probably, actually. So uh, yep. not a guarantee, but it's something worth testing before you rip and replace it. Mm -hmm. If you're putting it new, go with the better stuff. But if you have existing, don't go through the trouble of ripping it out until you've taken the time to test to see if it meets your needs. Yep. And we had a question about YubiKey in reference to episode 45, specifically um, wanting to know if we have checked out the only key. I haven't. Have you checked that out? Only key, no, but let me grab it out of my drawer so I can remember the name of it. Um, I have more keys. What is, I bought more keys because uh, I have a trust key in my hand. I had to look at it to remember the name of it. Um, I'm going to, I'm, I, I didn't know if I want to buy the other ones because I, I remember looking, some of them were out of stock and trust key is part of the Fido Alliance. I, we're, I'm going to do a video because I think Fido is a solution, not any proprietary standard. So, Key authentication, right. awesome. Key authentication using FIDO, amazing. This is something YubiKey supports. This is something that other than YubiKey, hardware key authentication can do. Companies that have been certified with the FIDO Alliance have gone through security testing to make sure that they've implemented it properly. And a well-implemented, properly implemented FIDO key is really good for security. The challenge you will run into that I'm running into even making the video is trying to find a good list of services that use it. Your major companies seem to do it, but it falls off pretty quick once you get outside of your big companies. And I say big companies, let's say like Google uses it, obviously. Uh, it's easy right. to get authentication with your large companies. It's all the smaller ones that don't do it. I wish they did, but uh, that's you know why I still want to make a video because I, I've I encourage more users to do it. Those users will also bug their favorite services going, hey, why don't you guys implement FIDO? Because from a cost standpoint, other than the development time, which is non-trivial, but 
it's pretty well documented how to do FIDO, and I wish more and more places supported it. And even Microsoft, in their recent write-up they had about being breached, they said FIDO would have solved this problem because someone had breached uh, 2FA from a text message 2FA they had. So even though I haven't tested every key, as long as the keys you have are, if you're going to go with the FIDO, FIDO certified, they're good to use and uh, definitely going to increase your security posture. And it doesn't have to be YubiKey. And that's one of the reasons I'm holding in my hand something not YubiKey uh, to show people. One, there's some you know other options out there. YubiKey is not bad. Nothing wrong with them. But when you start looking at pricing, you go, well, I want to buy a couple of keys. I want to have a backup key. Great. Maybe you don't want to buy two YubiKeys. <laughs> I would say for our audience to continue to suggest things that we should look into. So if you, for example, notice another kind of key, let us know. But I would also say that you should also let us know what it is about that key that you feel makes it different, that makes you curious about it. Because it, just like this person said, this person literally said, you know, you can't check out all of them, which is true. But if you help us understand what makes something stand out, that might get our attention better. Because yeah. if it says, have you checked out the only key? No, I haven't. But if the next sentence is, because it has this awesome feature that all, all the other keys they don't have yet, I really suggest that you check this out. Okay, now I'm more curious about that particular key because I know there's something that makes it stand out. Yeah. I mean, what stood out to me about this key that I'm holding, one, it's part of the FIDO Alliance, two, prime shipping. It was free. Well, free shipping was cheap. So I was like, hey, I can just buy this and add the card on Amazon. I'm not going to lie. That is a factor. Um, availability and ease of purchase matters when you want to buy a bunch of these. So that's yeah. something that falls into part of the category of research. Nothing <laughs> like impulse buying and retail therapy. In, 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 so impulse buying had, had a factor in that. <laughs> yep. Let's see. What's so, the next question? Have you thought about a home lab prequel? Not another show, but an episode Q&A. I, I want to read this question. I think it's interesting. Why you want to sub VPN, um, what you can do with it. I think we cover everything from the basics, so we don't really need a prequel. It's kind of a follow along all of this. So, Yeah. If we do a prequel, then I think we're going to start inviting some of the toxicity that the Star Wars community has because they don't really seem to like prequels much. And um, I'm kidding. Of course, it has nothing to do with their podcast. But um, <laughs> we have specifically structured the podcast such that someone should be able to listen from the first episode to current. Right. And obviously there's going to be some things that are of the times, but generally speaking, we're using old equipment. So we're not really as vulnerable to, um, you know, something being outdated as other audiences because we're using hand-me-down equipment here. So um, I don't really feel like there's a ton that is really of the times. It's just, you know, we would we want you to be able to listen from the beginning on up. And by that point, you should have a decent understanding of what we're talking about by the time you catch up with us in the present. Yeah. And there comes a point where we're also not the here's the mouse and here's the power button people. Um, I There are plenty of other people out there. It's like that's part of the thing. One, I prefer to say more towards this is even this podcast is maybe a little bit lower than some of the more deeper videos that I get into because we can't convey that as easily in a podcast. The same with Jay. Jay has entire videos where he dives deep into Ansible. That's also not a beginner's topic. Um, so it's trying to figure out where we fit in. We did this so we can encourage a lot of people to get in there. And we definitely tell people who start here and want to go more advanced. But if you want to go less advanced in this, there, there's plenty of YouTube channels out there. There's some very one-on-one great channels. And, but I don't know which ones there because I haven't watched them. I just know people tell me this person helped me get started. Or this person helped me get started. So um, it exists. If you search for things like how to do something really basic, there's probably already a YouTube video for it. Um, so yeah, me and Jay start where we start. It's always hard when we're thinking about this to figure out the best way to do it. It really is. In my case, when it comes to Linux, that's you know in the name of my channel. So it's pretty obvious that's what I cover. So if I start talking about a networking topic as it pertains to you know to Linux, there's going to be some requirement of of some understanding because I'm not, for example, networking 101 TV. If I was to cover generic networking from the very beginning, then that's not specifically Linux. I'm outside of my niche at that point. And so many other people out there, like you said, have already done that. So I'd just be kind of repeating everything. But once you get the basics down, then we'll be right here waiting for you when you get to that point. And we'll get yep. you we'll get you all the way up to advanced. Yep. 
Um, did you want to take a uh, line 96? Let's see. Disrupting the ad model. So I didn't actually check the ad nauseum plugin as of yet that this individual has mentioned to us. Um, in regards to episode 49 mentioning disrupting the ad model, um, and, and they're claiming the ad nauseum plugin does that. I, I feel like, I guess where this comes from without, you know, going too far down in the rabbit hole, because now I'm just talking about a pure opinion on my part. This is not fact. I haven't had time to research this yet. It's just a hypothetical thought that I had. It's it's like we hold the power ourselves when um, when it comes to tracking and privacy, because you know, the number of people that are concerned about this, we can disrupt that by feeding bad information. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, obviously there's ads on my videos. I, you know, am paid from these ads, you know, but I also go into the ads and I delete a lot of them too, that YouTube inter injects in there. Cause I found out they were putting ads every four or five minutes. And I don't think that's fair, especially when it's, you can't even watch the video but a lot of people, you know, out there, we do this wrong. We have ads all over a blog page. You can't even read it. So it's not like we really hate giving money to creators. That's what sometimes we could be accused of by using ad blockers. But the reality of it is, at least on my part, if the ad is reasonable, I don't really feel the need to block it. If it's flashing on the page, it's interrupting my reading, which they often do it's a negative experience, then I I have no guilt in blocking it whatsoever. But at the same time, it's like if the ad companies are going to drown us, then we have the power to, to fight back if we all unite. But at the same time, I don't want us to fight back to the point where no creator makes money at all. There has to be a balance. So I don't know if that's quite the way to go because I haven't checked out that extension or that um, GitHub project yet. But I it think there's got to be something we can do. Yeah, and we don't have the same hot take that Linus had tweeted a couple of weeks back. Something along the lines of people who block ads are uh, the same as movie pirates. And I'm like, I don't think so. I don't think that's exact. That's not a one-to-one -one equivalency, my friend. There's no <laughs> truth to that at all. I mean, it'd be one thing if I was blocking ads just because I can. Ads never bother me until they do. If there's a banner up there or, you know, something before a video plays, I don't mind that so much because I get it because my business is built on that. But here's the thing. If you go to learnlinux.tv and you see ads all over the place, you can't see the video, you can't read anything, and you have to click away like 10 different things. You know what? Block my ads. I deserve to lose money, period. End of discussion. That's doing bad business and it's creating a bad user experience. So for someone to say that, I feel like they're generalizing things because, yeah, if we blocked ads just to block ads, that's bad. But what we're experiencing here as users, and it's important for content creators to understand this, is that we're reading a blog article in our free time. But it's hard to do that when you have things popping over it constantly. So all we really want is a balance between, you know, content creators making money, but also having a good experience on our end. And that's why we do it. And I think Linus should probably understand that. It's not like we want to steal his <laughs> content. We just don't want to have 10 things over top of the page that we have to remove yeah. every time we want to read something. Yeah, it's finding a happy balance on there. And it's not easy. And the ad market has always been terrible. And it's not better now. It's just less pop-ups now because browsers, the day that they decided not to have pop-ups was great. But here we are today with just a different problem. But and, we have uh, popover at we got popovers pop now, they, so we don't have pop ups. We, we don't have pop ups now. We got popovers. We've come full circle. So <laughs> and they're getting really bad. When's the last time you've read an article online and you know one minute in you didn't have something pop over right in front of what you're reading? I can't remember the last time I've done that or were able, yeah, was able to do that. Definitely go back to buying books. That's how you can help authors and creators and read a really solid, good book. We had a good discussion over the weekend with our friend, Michael Lucas. Um, yep. discuss Maybe we should have Michael Lucas on here talking about learning and technology and things like that. We certainly recommended his books enough. We'll, we'll uh, take that into feedbacks. Um, yep. <laughs> all right. Next question, not related to advertising is would love, would love to see when you guys talk about installing zero tier on true NAS scale. Well, I uh, I think I can feel safe in in uh, quoting what Wendell told me when we were discussing some of the QNAS scale problems, true NAS scale problems, um, is it, it's still tricky 
it, I think the words he used, if you color outside the lines a little on Docker and things like that, how it still breaks things. I don't know how well TrueNAS uh, would integrate uh, with like things like zero tier. It becomes kind of tricky. And to me, it's not the place to really run it. But I guess if you are trying to build your network on zero tier, I'm still a big fan of VPN. And I VPN things to uh, when I'm outside the office, when I'm inside, you know, and I want to get outside, I VPN to the, the things I need. And that's how I do the transport layer. Putting things like zero tier directly on your NAS, if it's not built to handle it and the people building it, IX systems, didn't think to integrate it, it can be a lot trickier to integrate and then also break things. I've already had some mm-hmm. problems. Um, this is why I've been slow on the TrueNAS scale videos. I have questions that I can't find answers for in documentation. I'm a RTFM kind of person. So when I keep finding some of these problems, now it gets even harder for me to integrate because we've even uh, found me and I was hanging out with Wendell from Level and Text for the weekend along with Jay. And this is all a discussion we had about some of the challenges with this new product and not being able to get certain network aspects features to work, not even related to adding something like zero tier to it. So I don't know how soon we would do a video relating to that. And also if the, if until it's something that the IX systems people want to start baking in, it's going to be a problematic thing to add it. Um, there's probably going to be someone right, do a good write-up that's taken the time to really dive deep into how to start modifying it. The problem is with any of these, when people start modifying a core function of it to bolt on some functionality, the update monster comes and breaks all your functionality and you have to redo it again with the updates. And that's less sustainable to me versus whenever there's a new update to TrueNAS, I just update it and don't think twice about it because I'm using a VPN to get in. So it's unrelated to TrueNAS. Now the TrueNAS does have open VPN. Um, and I think WireGuard natively built in. So you could possibly do it that way for other ways to think about connectivity. If there's a reason you want to connect directly to the NAS, but back to from a design standpoint, generally you want your VPN because it's usually not one thing I want to get to on my network. I VPN to my network. I get to all the things on my network instead of having to do each device individually. So I have a Synology on my network. I have a TrueNAS on my network. I have a home assistant on my network. And when I VPN, I'm accessing all those things uh, as opposed to setting up a VPN to each of those things. Granted, zero tier is another way around that, um, but I don't know if it's the best way. So those are my I would thoughts agree. So I feel like this is a very common um, element of the life cycle or the, you know, process, whatever you want to call it, how a home lab person evolves over time. So if you're a beginner, and by the way, I'm not alleging that the person who wrote in is a beginner at all. Um, that's not what I'm saying. But in a general sense, um, speaking about nobody in particular, you might be, and I was, you know, personally, of the mindset, oh, I want to implement this thing. I'm going to add it to all the things. So all the things have the thing. And then as you get more experienced, like you were basically saying, is that, oh, well, I don't have to have it on all the things because if I put it on the router or the firewall, then it's basically on all the things and routing will get will make things go where it needs to go. So you could put put it in one place rather than a bunch of different places, which makes sense. It's easier to maintain. And that's something you generally want in a firewall or router anyway. But the other opinion that I have on this, which could be a little controversial. I think a lot of people will agree with me, but some won't, and that's totally fine. Um, When you decide to set up an appliance, by appliance, I mean a turnkey solution. Obviously, TrueNAS has a bunch of dials and things that you can set, but I consider TrueNAS an appliance, which means you're using something as created by the developer for the intended purpose of that thing, So if you're going to go in there and start adding this, adding that, customizing this, then you're basically, in my opinion, making an appliance into a custom build. And if you're going to do that, why not just jump straight to custom building something? Because that would be what you want to do anyway. Now, I used to be, you know, earlier on um, adding Ansible to everything, even like Proxmox, for example, but I stopped doing that because Proxmox is an appliance. I'm going to use it as they intended it to use or be used. And if I decide that it doesn't work for me, I need more features or I need more control, then I'm just going to go straight KVM, QEMU on a custom built server and just roll it all myself when it gets to that point. And the other thing to consider on this too, 
one of the things that's important to understand is like there are certainly projects that say start with Ubuntu, start with Debian, load our thing on top of it. You can even look at something really broad like WordPress. They'll tell you here's the prerequisites for your base operating system. When you look at something like Proxmox or TrueNAS, whether it's Scale or Core, they are fully rolled in. You don't load the OS and then load their tooling on top. They're fully complete. They're loading the tooling. They've done so much customization. They don't want you starting with the base OS and loading their libraries on top of it and their scripts and all of their code on top of it. They want you to roll it as an installer. And the reason for that, when you start digging into the way they did Debian, they stripped out lots of features uh, to minimize it. And they also customize lots of things in the way it works. So you won't find things in the same expected places all the time, which creates these challenges when you're trying to integrate because normal tools expect things to be based on normal Debian and TrueNAS Scale is not normal Debian. It's Debian customized to the way TrueNAS Scale works. So that's an important, when you're thinking about any of those, um, that bolt-on functionality, it's just, it's not always impossible, um, but it's always Often was should be often I should say a kludge of trying to get things to work together. Yeah, I, have you ever noticed that the mindset generally seems to be when it comes to a product that uses something like Debian or Ubuntu on, underneath that you might see comments like, "Well, this is just a CentOS reskin," or right. "This is just a Debian reskin," and it seems like it's everything. Like you use Pop OS, so that's just an Ubuntu reskin. You, you buy a System seventy six computer, that's just a Clevo, even though they do considerable work to differentiate that. And Pop OS is super different than Ubuntu. Now, just because it's built on Debian doesn't mean every Debian design mentality was followed. Just like you were saying, and then you could create a situation where you're in the forums, you're trying to figure out a problem just to find out that your custom chef implementation is the reason why it doesn't work. And now you tied up the developers and community members to try to figure out a problem that technically shouldn't have even happened in the first place. Yes. And the rule of thumb is really simple for any project. So we can speak more broadly to this. Does the project require you load the base OS or does the project come with, with the base OS? Mm. It comes with the base OS, it's probably not meant, I mean, it's not, I would say probably going to be harder to mess with and harder to implement customization to it. If they have you load a base OS, probably going to be really easy to customize because you load the base OS and you can probably throw a few extra things in there uh, to make yourself happy. So that hopefully clears all that up for all the other projects because there's so many from out there that this question could be applied to. Um, yep. Next one is TrueNAS Scale. I'm sorry, not TrueNAS Scale, Tail Scale. The other scale thing. <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, we did a zero tier. Um, I don't have a problem. I can do a revised one on tail scale. I've done a video on it before. Uh, we can throw it in our queue for once to cover. Tail scale is interesting. It's a management plane to control WireGuard as the fundamental backend to tie things together. Works extremely similar to the way that um, zero tier works. It's a mesh network, if you will, that has some really clever features. It's really popular. It is also a commercial solution. So, so is zero tier to an extent, uh, zero tier seems to be more open source friendly tail scales, open source on the client side, but very clearly, uh, proprietary on the server side. So maybe we'll throw that in the queue to eventually cover it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to skip the long list. Someone just had a long list of suggestions for things to cover. Um, everything from Docker to rsync to bitrot to that. So, um, yeah, most are good topics. Yeah, all good topics on there. I don't know if we're going to cover OpenWRT. Um, someone they threw it in there, and I don't really, I don't know. PFSense is so inexpensive, it's kind of the go to in the home lab because of the flexibility and the fact that you can buy th their hardware devices relatively cheap or you can just load it on any older hardware you have. So, I don't see the OpenWRT. I don't use it either. It also would be harder for me or Jay. We, we, me and Jay talk about this like offline a lot. Sometimes it's hard for us to do a product that we never use or don't have an interest in using. It's hard to do the video because we're not going to be experts in it because we don't use it. So, yeah. um, but the other topics such as um, self-signed certificates, I, you know, after attending the talk recently on Michael Lucas over the weekend on SSL and TLS and certificates, I think maybe an episode just on how that works is definitely worth diving into uh, as a talking point. So I literally bought the hardcover of his book while I was there. So, yeah. yeah. 
yeah, it's it's definitely one that I think there. Because even I'm working on a video about how SSL inspection works because it's a point of much confusion to people of actually how uh, STLS inspection works, how man in the middle works, how you manage that in enterprise environments, and also how you uh, deal with things like SNI and what happens when we go to ESNI, what breaks next, and how you break TLS 1.3, and why Cisco wrote an article on why they hate. TLS 1.3. <laughs> yes, Cisco. That Cisco did. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of drama there. Um, there is. So I was yes. going to say, I'll, to piggyback off what you said, I mean, we yeah, we would love to try all of these things, and maybe a number of them we will. Sometimes things can be in my queue for several months before I get to them. But it's also possible when I find an editor for the videos that I do on the YouTube channel, and that time comes back to me, I might then be able to, to dive into those smaller topics and create more content around those things. I mean, I'll get to the content regardless eventually because I have a queue for a reason. But um, like you were saying, if it's something that I use already, it's not that, well, everyone should be using that thing. So why would I look at anything else? It's like low hanging fruit. I already know the thing. So it's easy for me to do a tutorial on it because I know it. But at some point, I'm hoping to free up some more time and maybe I will um, explore outside my comfort zone more often. Yeah. Yep, it takes time to get all these put together. I'll take the next one, which is very simple. Uh, we were asked about, I don't know if it was targeted towards you, me, or both, about OpenStack. So yeah. the short answer is most likely. I don't want to promise it. Um, I'm not going to give anything away right now, but I am actually talking to a company that wants to give me access remotely to an OpenStack stack and I'm going to be meeting with them this week to see if that's something that they can do. And if it is, then I'm going to consider doing some videos on OpenStack, actually. That'll make it a lot easier for me to do that, considering the hardware that you might need to run it. But I'm not going to promise it because there's all kinds of video topics that I wanted to come out with and didn't work out. But my intention as of recording time right now is I definitely want to do that. I am taking action on it and engaging with that company. And if it works out, I'll tell you what that company actually is and then give you guys like some kind of an ETA on when video content might be available. But I've always liked OpenStack. It's just been one of my, my geeky things that I like. You know, we always have our thing. Like, why do we like that? I don't know. I like it. I like it because I like it. And I yeah. like that. So I'm hoping that it works out. I will hope to let you guys know. Um, just keep in mind, you know, my, my backlog is usually three months deep. So it could be summer or fall before we see content around it, but it is my intention to make OpenStack content. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, it's definitely pretty cool. Jay's the expert on that more so than myself. Um, I'm going to mention this one that we're not likely to cover it with, with me or Jay, which is CephFS, uh, Ceph and Gluster. But me and Jay are not like to cover it by ourselves. That's the key word. Um, I right. do have people I know. I've uh, talking to the 45 drives people um, about doing a video. I don't know if it'll make it for the podcast. It may be just a separate video on the channel um, because it, because of the complexities. It needs some. I don't know how good it would be to verbally explain. We'll we'll, we'll chew that one a little bit to see if it's a podcast episode. Um, but the other problem is, and part of what we're going to discuss, and this is what me and the team at 45 Drives came up with, is not everything needs to have a clustered file system, despite the number of people asking. Um, it's not the solution for everything, and that's something people don't seem to understand. So we will start it with the perspective of, do you really need a clustered file system? To do it as a learning process, absolutely jump into it, have fun, um, run into those brick walls of, oh, wow, this is a little bit more complicated. But because it's an extra layer on top of things, you don't format the hard drive, Ceph. You build your storage servers and you load Ceph and you set the storage nodes up and there's all the things you do, but all this extra complexity, it does have an absolute use for things like you know enterprise, high availability, extremely large storage servers. But I get people suggesting that I do it for even like when I I did a video uh, talking about just setting up one server for a client, I'm like, yeah, that's not their use case. They don't want the complexities that come with 
adding Ceph, Ceph on top of uh, what they already do. So it's not just because they have a petabyte of storage doesn't automatically mean, but they need Ceph. That's the only way to do this. No, because now no. you have extra complexities that would have increased the job cost. I mean, sure, if we have an unlimited budget, just buy three or four of those petabyte servers and uh, throw Ceph on them and cluster them together. Oh, build all the redundancy and the networking they need for that, which they don't really need. But, you know, the budget's unlimited in people's head. So it makes sense to go ahead and deal with it. Oh, and then just bring on a sysadmin who knows stuff to make sure everything's right. So updates go fine and all the stack gets updated properly. Um, Cause all that complexity, you know, we got a budget for that too, to uh, have maintainers for it or just sell them one true NAS server with uh, a petabyte of storage. Because if the storage even was down for three days, it would just be annoying, but not, put the company at a standstill. So you got to think about when those use cases are, and that's kind of how we're going to start um, the, some of that talk on there. It's not for everyone. Don't try to design an overly complicated solution. That's hard to support. And of course, hard to support also means has some expenses that come with it. This, when you do things in the enterprise world, budgetary concerns, because you, you want to, unless you're bad at designing enterprise stuff, you don't just design it, you design it and you plan to support it. Um, there are plenty of people right. out there that got the hammer and nails and propped up something really rickety. And that's where they call me and Jay. They're like, yeah, the person that set this up, uh, they vanished. Can you look at this? And me and Jay are always like, um, we need to start. Over. <laughs> they did what with what? Um, well, yeah. I think my one of my um, one of the annoying things in the industry industry-wide is the mentality that you learn how to use a hammer now everything's a nail so you have yeah. to use a hammer on everything um now i can confirm that i'm including myself in this maybe not nowadays because i'm not like that now but when i first started um you know for example i learned python the first time quite a while ago i had to use python on everything including an rsync script that i wrote which was really good if i do say so myself but it also has probably about 50 lines more code than it ha would have if I had written it in Bash, which is more appropriate for that kind of thing. You just got to use the solution for its intended purpose and don't be all in to the point where you're forcing it to work um, where it doesn't. And I used to be that way, like I said, you know, for quite a while. I mean, I would literally, when I was, you know, very young and I wanted to, I'm building a project and I don't have a screwdriver, but I do have a hammer and I have a screw, but I can't find a nail. And I can confirm with enough effort and you know, being completely you know, focused on it, you can absolutely drive that nail or that screw into a board with a hammer, but that's not the right way to do it. Um, and it could be, I was just too lazy to go upstairs and find the screwdriver. But my point is that it, when it comes to IT, it's like, we need to containerize all the things. Everything must be Docker. We can't have a single virtual machine. No, 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 guys, no. There's a use case for a virtual machine. There's a use case for a container. There's a use case for Ceph. They have their place where they fit. And if you force something to work where it doesn't, it might work great at first, but eventually you're going to run into problems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, nested KVM virtualization. I don't know why they put nested in there, but uh, definitely some more talks on virtualization. <clears throat> yeah, I'm not nested virtualization is where you take, uh, let's say I'm using XCPNG and I load Ubuntu inside of it, and then I run another virtualization inside of it. Yes, that's supported. That is something you can do with XCPNG. I think Proxmox supports uh, nested vir virtualization. Hyper V and VMware do as well. But I don't know if the person is asking really about nested, but other virtualizations, I, I've been using this and someone asked about it. And I got to admit, I didn't know this until more recently because ain't broke, don't fix it. I use VirtualBox on my desktop to uh, run things and it runs really fast. I did a video yesterday on TrueNAS scale permissions and, you know, rebooting my Windows 10 machine in my VirtualBox on my Linux takes about 15 seconds. So it's certainly to me fast enough. But I do know the menus have gotten better for some of the other virtualization, uh, like KVM. So it's worth maybe some we'll talk about is virtualization on your desktop. It's not a topic we've covered yet where you have a desktop. You go, well, I don't really have time to buy another server, but I want to load something. One of my go-tos has been VirtualBox because it's free. It's easy with their menus on there. It's not hard to understand. Um, and it works cross-platform. So when I talk about VirtualBox, you could be running Windows, you could be running Linux, and it's the same VirtualBox. But there are other ones out there, and they've now got a better menuing system for some of the other ones I've learned. So, uh, yeah, that might be another topic we cover because I think that's another handy thing. 
that you have a good desktop. Maybe it's your gaming desktop. And when you're not playing games, you're not using that 16 gigs of RAM you put in there. You're not using that fast processor all the time. And you like to do some learning on it. And buying a server really isn't fit in your budget or fits in your dorm room, wherever you may right. be. You may be of limited space. And as much as we encourage you to go buy something on Linode, you're like, well, that also has a cost to it as well. You already have this device. Um, <clears throat> I still boot up Linux VMs because of the convenience of having them in VirtualBox. Uh, it works really well. But that topic in general of running some other type of virtualization system on your own computer simultaneously, it does work really well. And um, so something we can definitely explore in the future. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, let's see. The other, I think the last question we have in here... Um, Oh, is TrueNAS scale reliable enough is the last question we have in here. Um, I haven't found with TrueNAS scale any reliability problems. Most of the problems I've run into are speed related. We It doesn't seem to be as performant as um, TrueNAS core is. I think it just hasn't gotten optimized yet. Reliability wise, provided you use it as they intended. Note my earlier comment of if you color outside the lines a little, as Wendell said, sometimes you'll end up breaking things in Docker um, and breaking all the things that you have running on it. So if you're using it as they intended and not loading third party uh, modifications to it, it seems to work quite well. Uh, we've had a server running for a little while. We've been doing testing on it and functionally it works. Um, so I don't think there's any reliability in it, but if you're looking to squeeze the most performance out of the hardware you have, that has been the drawback as of right now, today, still April of 2022. Future versions are undoubtedly going to go through just like TrueNAS Core has optimization over time. Uh, we're just not there yet. They're, they just got released a month or two ago, if, if even that. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I have figured based on the conversations that we've had on camera as well as off camera, and we've talked about it this weekend as well. We've talked about a lot this weekend. We were hanging out all weekend. So yeah. um, I just figure maybe I'll give TrueNAS Scale another look at like version three or something, because right now, I mean, I was planning on switching to it because my mentality was you had me at Linux, right? Um, but when it was slower, when it was released, then it was either the beta of the release candidate. Okay, I can't really get behind that right now. I need to know that the technology is more solid, especially if I'm going to be relying on it for the backend storage of my video editing routine. That's not something I can really mess with because that will literally cause a huge problem. So, but I do want to take a look at it. It is Linux based, so I absolutely will try it out again, but I just want it. I want it to have more time in the oven. Yeah. the um, Someone mentioned, too, I, I'll go back to the previous question. Wendell has a, probably a good write-up on this where you can turn your system in so it boots off of an OS such as XCPNG or one of the other hypervisors and then starts up another operating system that projects to one of the screens with multiple cards. So you have multiple video cards in it. There are ways to do it. I think that's what they're meaning by nested. I, that's what I'm assuming based on the comments I see coming in the live stream here. So um, just to go back to that. Yeah, I, I don't think we're going to cover that as a topic. That's a that's a very complicated and fun project, way harder to do in verbal words um, inside of a podcast. That's a that's an yeah. explainer and a write up of how all that works. <laughs> I think it's even difficult to do in a video because if you're nesting something with something else, then what are the odds that someone's going to be nesting the exact same thing and you're you're doing in the video? Because the whole definition, I mean, you're nesting things is because you have unlike things or maybe they are like things, but you're combining things in a way that may or may not be how it was intended to be used. And when it comes to tutorials, we live or die by how reproducible. That is when you watch it, if you watch it and you get a completely different experience, either you've done something wrong on your end and you weren't following it properly, or I've done something wrong on my end and I didn't explain it properly or something, who knows, right? But in that situation, tutorials are tested one-to-one, -one, this version, that version, but it, it gets a lot harder when you're nesting things, in my opinion. That's kind of hard to, not impossible, but difficult to translate into a video. Yeah, it's it's a pretty neat. Um, if you 
go over to the level one tech forums. There's some good write-ups in there on that whole subject of doing it. Cause a lot of it has to do with people who wanted to even do things like video game pastures. So they want to run Linux, but still run windows and pass through windows boot from it and then pass the video card through in a meaningful way. So it doesn't lose performance. So you can now play and use your windows nested, but it, you know, I mentioned virtual boxes, the, not the best way to do it. Cause if you don't get the pass through the graphics card properly, you don't get the performance and, you know, gaming right. is all about using that graphics card you have for performance. So yeah, there's some good write-ups on there. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a great topic, but it's also uh, harder to cover in a podcast. So and, we, and, you know, the thing is too, I mean, I, I will say there there is some fun aspects of this where I can't remember the YouTuber, it wasn't that long ago, where they literally had Raspberry Pis running in a desktop case along with an x86 board, desktop computer board. And, and they were part of the equation in the same, you know, Frankenstein case of mismatch, you know, chipsets and parts. It was so freaking cool. I mean, it was so awesome. I don't know how reproducible that would be on my end, but that's some great content. But outside of that, there's really only so much we can do. And But anyway, if you out there have some really amazing combinations that are just really weird, strange, cool, or epic, let us know, please. We really want to know about it. Yeah. What have you created? Yeah, feel free to fill out the contact form on all of that. And uh, we'll, we'll go a few more minutes and see if there's any questions here that we missed in the live stream chat. Did you see anything in here, Jay? Or uh, Let's look. So I we got that. Um, of it. We did the Ceph questions. <laughs> yep. People talking about virtualizing their firewall. You know, from a home lab perspective, I like virtualized firewalls from a business perspective, like enterprise wise, um, keeping hardware, hardware's in it, comparatively speaking in the enterprise spaces, uh, less expensive. So yeah, I still, I'm still a big fan of not trying to virtualize all your firewalls. Yeah. I used to do that. I think uh, at the very beginning and it's not impossible. You can do it. It's just, you'll find out some edge cases pretty quick that are hard to explain that you can only, experience by trying it and it's not that you can't work around those things because a lot of people do and they have no problem working around it but it is going to cause you to think in a way that's going to be oh yeah i didn't think of that so um especially when you have a single point of failure and then everything comes crashing down that's not fun either so i'm a fan of keeping something outside of the or the firewall outside of the virtualization stack but then again, that's just my opinion. And if you are able to do it and you maintain it and it works for you, then no judgment. Yep. Uh, there's people that did ask the question. I see someone said, I want to know how much of a difference there is between the new Ubuntu and the old one. I'm assuming you mean the last release. Good news. Our last episode is for you. We covered the yeah. differences and changes in there. Um, and on top of that, Jay has reviews he's released on Ubuntu with some spicy opinions. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think in terms of Ubuntu server, which I think is going to be the most relevant to our audience here. I mean, we, we talked about the desktop version pretty much solely because there wasn't much to talk about in regards to the server version, which you can argue when it comes to a server operating system, that's a good thing. There's there's just not a lot to talk about. Great, it, it works. The desktop version is an abomination that I won't get into. Um, I'm very disappointed in Canonical and the release of Ubuntu in the direction they're going, but I'm not gonna say any more than that. But when it comes to Ubuntu server, it's still solid. It's not that different. It, compared to 2004, if you're coming from an LTS, you have a, a newer kernel, actually newer pretty much everything. The technologies have been moved forward, but I don't feel like it's a huge change to the point where I'm creating or actually updating the Mastering Ubuntu server book, which is happening. We are right, I'm writing it and we're going back and forth with the publisher right now. I don't have a release date, but what I can tell you is there's going to be less of a change in this edition from the last edition compared to you know the second edition to the third edition there's going to be fewer changes there's still new content but it's not as big of a difference because with 2004 there was a lot different we even had a new installer i had to rewrite the installation section while we were going through the process because ubuntu changed it at the last minute but now everything's pretty much stable and solid so i have no hesitation recommending ubuntu server at all i still think it's one of the best along with Debian for servers. Yep. 
Um, I see Veronica Explains is in here. If you don't follow her channel, uh, check Hello. her channel out as well. And Veronica says, I don't virtualize client firewalls in production. Too many bad experience with failure points on the host server. Uh, we actually had a really weird one. It was really annoying. Uh, someone with a virtualized firewall, you couldn't ping some devices and some devices couldn't talk to the firewall. We don't know why. We do know what the solution was. It wasn't restarting the firewall service uh, or the VM the firewall is running on. That didn't solve it. It was, though, we still, we can't reproduce the problem. But the way we solved it was shut down all machines on the VM, reboot the entire VM system, bring it back up, and magic all the things that wouldn't ping, ping. We do know, looking at the ARP tables, that there was some weird assumption the ARP table was somewhere else. We don't know why we kept getting a bad response. We maybe could have restarted just the network stack. I don't know. The best thing we did was just reboot the whole host VM to solve it. These are rare occurrences, but what you've done when you virtualize the firewall, you've added one more layer of complexity. Um, and in the enterprise environment, you want the layers of complexity to be minimum because the goal is the maximum uptime, maximum support. Um, and putting in HA firewalls sometimes even to not necessarily because you are worried about the firewall failing, but also so you can manage updates and have rollbacks uh, are good ways to do it. So <laughs> you find out some, like I was saying earlier, some weird edge cases, one of which might be, yeah, I need to back up my PFSense VM. So I'm going to just shut it down. I'm going to take a backup image of it and make sure that I have a way to revert back because, you know, having backups of the config isn't enough. You want a bigger backup than that, right? So Yep. And you're like, wait, why can't I back this up? It, it isn't working. He's timing out. Oh, that's right. My storage server is somewhere else and proc or PFSense is a VM. But since I shut down PFSense to back it up, it doesn't know how to route to the storage server anymore. So how do I get the backup from the local storage to the uh, backup server? What I could do is, of course, just save the backup locally, then bring you know PFSense back up. And then I can route again. So now I'm able to get the backup where it needs to go. But you'll find all kinds of things like that that you're not always going to think about when you design this that, in my opinion, are, are just headaches that I would avoid if you can to the point where if you could find like a, you know, an old desktop that has a, you know, two one gig Ethernet NICs in it or yep. um, just, just put that in there, it's going to save you. Yeah, it might run you $100 used if you don't have one lying around, but it's still a lot better than spending hours trying to figure out why you can't do something just to find out that the design, it doesn't really scale to how things are normally done. So you're going to run into edge cases. It's frustration. And how much is your frustration worth? I think it's probably worth checking the local yard sales, especially as the weather gets warmer in the United States. <laughs> find something to install PFSense on and put it in put it in your network. You'll 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 thank me for it. Trust me. Yep. Um, Jay, have you got your released uh, video yet for the new version of Pop OS? Or are you working on that one still? That one I'm hoping to put out today. Um, okay. It's ninety percent done, but I decided to add another scene at the last minute, which. Um, I was about to hit the render button right before this started, but I was just a minute too late. I'm going to try to get that out today. Yep, perfect. Because I've seen someone asked about it. Um, so that video is coming and we'll leave you with that. That's, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, check that out. Keep keep an eye on Jay's channel. Make sure you're liked and subscribed over there uh, so you can know when that comes out. It should be out, by, like Jay said, within the next 24 to 48 hours. I know how he is. He's obsessive and won't stop until it's done. <laughs> right. And it, it will be today as long as that random bug in YouTube doesn't happen where it's processing for like two days oh, straight. Oh, I know. Um, because it, you know, I could upload it right now, which which my, with my connection, it'll take an hour, no problem. But then after it gets uploaded, it might be processing, processing, and then days later, like, are you ever going to finish? But most of the time, it's within 15 minutes after that. But I, you know, it's up to YouTube at that point how long it's going to be processed. So I guess we'll find out. Yeah, that is, that is a challenge we creators run into. Sometimes there's this little spinning wheel that says processing, and then it says five minutes left, and then it says taking longer than expected, and there's no ETA. It just that's the notice we get because like we'll upload something, you'll have to wait forever. So I literally they, wake up the next morning and and see it's still the same status, and the next morning again, I'm like, oh my god, and I look on Twitter, and everyone else is complaining too. So I know yep. it's not just me. So yeah, hopefully it'll be soon. We'll see how it goes. Yep. All right. So thanks everyone for joining us and uh, see you next time.